0: Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so um well I'll just for my own sake. Um Yeah. So this feels this feels the moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) It's always edit. (laughs) So this feels terribly awkward, but uh alright, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh we're calling this the History of Christian No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um and uh I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it. So we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week, as always, Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This is our last podcast on Tertullian. We are looking at his writing The Prescription Against the Heretics. In this episode, we will do an in-depth look at the Regula Fide, which is the rule of faith, as Tertullian calls it. Um, Tom and I have a big debate towards the end where we actually debate what place this rule of faith has in Tertullian's thought. At the beginning, we delve into the most famous quote from this text and the most famous quote from Tertullian, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? Um, So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please check us out on Facebook at slash a history of Christian theology. We'll talk to you again next week. Um, we also looked briefly at uh, the prescription against heretics uh, from Tertullian, uh, in which he makes the most famous quote, maybe from Tertullian. I mean, there are many of them, but he says, What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Um, all three of us have taught at a classical Christian school uh, where we at least teach the history of Athens. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, and that that quote can sort of form a backdrop of a lot of the way um, that Christians look at the history of the classical world. Well, why do we care what the gods say? Why do we care what Plato says? Why do we care what Aristotle says? That doesn't have anything to do. That doesn't have anything to do with Jerusalem, with Christianity, with the true heavenly um, citizenship in which we live. So, why do we even read this stuff? And so, Tertullian um, sort of famously just says, nope, you don't need to study it at all." Um, and I, I, you know, that's kind of. Um, it's a, it's a challenging statement. Um, it, it's formed the backdrop of a lot of um, Christian thought. Um, what say you guys?
1: Well, one thing, I, I'd encourage our listeners to think of that statement as kind of a, uh, basically what's called a metonymy in English. It's a figure of speech in which Athens represents something and Jerusalem represents something. Athens represents wisdom, knowledge, critical thinking, philosophy, learning. It represents a hunger and a thirst for uncovering the the causation that underlies our world. Um, It represents critical thinking, whereas Jerusalem represents faith and commitment to God and this notion of an elect people. That is that God had chosen uh, the Israelites. They were his people. So it's the notion of God's people versus this kind of intellectual world, which all this fits right into that passage in first Corinthians that, that, that um, Chad quoted at the beginning of the, of, of the podcast, this idea that we as Christians have revelation. God has revealed truth to us. So what business do we have reading Plato and Aristotle. But I take it further, what business do we have reading um, any of the contemporary physicists? Why read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking? Or why watch Cosmos by Neil deGrasse Tyson? Uh, Why engage in any of these wasted... By the way, I don't believe this. This is kind of... I'm kind of speaking um, for people who might say this. Uh, This wasted... Why waste time listening to these people who are clearly not just wrong but maybe even evil who are telling us these narratives and stories that are so clearly false because they don't line up with what the Bible says? Why bother is kind of the question I think that Tertullian would ask us. You don't need to know what Cosmo says. Just read the Bible. You've got the Bible. You've got the revealed truth. Don't worry about education, learning, science. Philosophy, psychology.
2: Um, not like you talked for so long. <laughs> I couldn't remember what. You, I'm just, i just re- the original, um, okay. Well, I'm
1: just re-explaining the problem. Yeah, That's all. yeah. Well, they, that, I talked, can <laughs> you edit that? Because that makes me feel bad. <laughs> no, I don't want You no, talked for no, so long. No, it was just more like, I was thinking about... <laughs>
2: I was seeing every individual thing you're saying, and then I forgot like how you first prefaced the whole. Yeah, thing. I was just
1: trying to put it in a way to where, yeah, you know that just how people might think about it today, just the context of today, um, because I that's what people would say. I mean, we we brought it up before. Right. People ask us why study philosophy because they they speak of philosophy as if it's kind of evil, as if there's something bad about it. If you study science, they're a little more okay with it. But then they want to make sure you're not buying into any of that evolution business or any of that old earth business. Or if you study psychology, woo, that's, I mean, psychology is almost demon possessed on, you know what I mean? Like, and from a lot of perspectives and I don't mean to make fun of people who might have that perspective per se, although I disagree with them. I I feel very comfortable saying that. I just mean to say, I, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but I do think a lot of people have that kind of view today. So that being said, what do we say? How do we respond to that? What do we think? Well, I
2: think it's analogous to Tertullian only in the sense that he is in his own way being a bit of a fundamentalist in yes. the sense that he's trying to say this is a Jewish faith, uh, you know, or this, this is Jew- in Jewish origin or of Jewish origin. And he's trying to say, like, let's get back to, like, how this thing got built and it's you know original structure and um he's trying to yeah he's just trying to be conservative he's less liberal he's not just saying yeah accept this wherever you find it um and he contrasts with clement who says no go read the philosophers pull out all the nuggets you can like we talked about how he he thought of it as the seed of truth in there that there was a kernel and you could find it you could dig through all the crap you're like oh, that's not true Because, but at the same time, he was fundamentalist his own way. He was comparing that to scripture. I mean, so it was, but he was employing uh, the faculties of reason still to, you know, deduce and further come up with things. And Tertullian, I mean, he's doing the same thing. He's going, look, uh, this is true. Why is this true? Well, the Bible says it. But also, if it were false, it would have this consequence and that consequence is absurd. Boom. And it's like a little mini argument. And he does, he does that several I don't even know, probably hundreds of times throughout his writings. But he he does it a lot, and it's still faculty he employs, and we all do. And I think it's probably because God gave us the faculty so that we could come to know the truth. And it does have an analog today to our fundamentalists, but our fundamentalists, once again, they're reacting to a different culture. So he Mm -hmm. was reacting to this, you know, over-Hellenization, I think, of Christianity that maybe he didn't enjoy uh, because of some of the consequences it had, like these Gnostic teachers Whereas, yeah, it's like the today's fundamentalists are trying to react to something different, and they're also working within it, within their own epistemic, or to define that for the audience, just within their own knowledge framework. They, they were trying to, Today, a fundamentalist will think we only know things as they are revealed by Scripture. But even, I mean, just to give my brief opinion, even the fundamentalist doesn't actually believe that. They take ibuprofen, uh, Because actually, their faith in the power of reason and science—they don't all take ID. Well, (laughs) true, you you got me there.
1: Maybe not. There are different levels of fundamentalists. There definitely are. So,
2: In fact, there might be people out there who are fairly liberal and would still consider themselves a fundamentalist. And maybe I'm not talking about you. But like the more of the position that you brought up, I guess that's what I'm react. I'd say we'd be reacting to now, Um, and there's. There's a parallel here, but it is different, and it is different for Tertullian. What he's trying to get back to is different, and what people now are trying to get back to is different, and for different reasons. It's a different motivation, and yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was raised in the in a – well, my, my dad was fun, raised fundamentalist. I was not. I was raised Southern Baptist. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely uh, heard some of those ideas don't study too much philosophy. Don't think too hard about things because they were – I mean in the – and I usually say though they were doing it for good reasons. I think they were misguided, but the reasons were they wanted um, they wanted me to have a strong faith. They didn't want me to lose what they knew to be true, what gave their life meaning and purpose. And, and so like for a long time I was really frustrated and I hated it and I was like why the heck uh, did I have to be raised this way? Um, or at least, you know, have some of that in the background. Um, and then, you know, I've come to recognize that, you know, even my uncle John who preached some things that, you know, I wouldn't agree with now, he did it because he thought, uh, and because he I believe he truly did love God and love Jesus and want me to continue in that. And, and so to the best that he knew, um, he was helping me. Um, and, and, on the other hand, I will say that, you know, that's just – it wasn't for, – for whatever reason, it wasn't good enough for me. And one thing we've talked about in this podcast um, is who we intend our audience to be. And as much as I would wish that all Christians um, would study philosophy, would think through rational arguments, would know the history of Christian theology, why I'm doing this podcast, I want it to be out there so that people know that Christians – think critically about their tradition, uh, that that recognize different influences and permutations and various things. Uh, but I, rec- I, I understand and I've become to be comfortable with the fact that there are going to be Christians who just aren't. Uh, and I can be frustrated with them. I can wish they thought differently. Um, but all I know is that I couldn't have uh, – you know, sort of continued my life any different than I have. And I had to ask more questions. I wanted to know Greek and Hebrew. I wanted to know how we got the Bible. I wanted to know all of these things. It wasn't good enough for me that it just was. Um I wanted more. Um uh, And I can, I mean, could never stop to the point where it's probably caused me um many problems and other things. I mean, maybe it would have been simpler if I just stopped. Uh, but, but yeah.
2: But no, people my parents' age or your parents' age, you know, philosophy to them, from what they understood (coughs) of it, and who were popular philosophers then, uh, they were all atheists. I mean, the the philosophical world was mostly atheistic, and there's mostly atheistic ideas being bounced around in the academy at that time. There was more of a – now there's more of a, I think, kind of Christian renaissance of philosophy going on. And so who knows? Now maybe because of the window, the window is going to shift of what's reasonable. And perhaps because of this, we're going to have our kids, it'll be a whole different thing. You know, I don't know. I've thought about that before because now they're not going to be reacting to just, oh, philosophy is just 80. Instead, they're going to be like, yeah, go be philosophers. And yeah, go study that. And now maybe what's reasonable and what the debate will be will completely shift. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that – your story, Chad, like, it makes sense. And I've even met people, and, you know, I'm a bit younger than you, um, and I've met people still that were, like, not my my parents weren't like this, but I did meet people who said, oh, you're studying philosophy. And they were, like, I'll pray for you. And, like, they were worried. And I'm, like, man, you must be thinking of Bertrand Russell, and he's been dead for a <laughs> while. <laughs> like, that was probably the last name you heard. And, like, and it's just, yeah.
1: Well, I guess to be fair, I mean, you know, I I mean, I, I've said it before. I I was a pastor in in the past, and I've seen how ideas there's so Proverbs 18:17 says that the case of a man sounds good until he is cross-examined. And the way I've always taken that is people tend to read things or hear things and they just buy into it. Right. And if they don't hear the other side, then they're never. Then they're just going to totally embrace it, and that's been kind of my experience. I mean, people just on the whole tend to uncritically accept things, and if a question is thrown at them that they've never heard before, that can like they often are totally turned upside down by it. I've seen a lot of Christians abandon their faith because they encountered something that they'd never thought of before, and that was it. Not not and maybe they sought an answer. Maybe they got a bad answer. Maybe they got yeah. an answer that wasn't satisfactory. So for them, that was it, end of Christianity. Like they just were going to reject it. So I do have that fear of people either abandoning their faith because of something they read or because of somebody they talk to or of people embracing a certain doctrine that I disagree with uh, without first having some kind of a critical response. You know, I do worry about that. And I don't know what exactly the answer is. I've gone both ways, in all honesty. I've never told somebody not to think through something. But I have tried to persuade people away from certain kinds of books or whatever for fear that having read it, they might change their minds about something. So I understand it. I don't know exactly the, the answer, especially because I can't remember who it was. It Was it Clement who basically makes the point that, look, in the church – people are different we have different gifts and not everybody's meant to be a philosopher not everybody's meant yeah. to think through all this stuff and was it clement chad do yeah. you recall clement. yeah and he makes the comment that actually a simplicity of faith in an uneducated person is often way more attractive and inspiring than the most well-read philosopher and i i agree with that i i'm with that you know right down the line nonetheless I always, I, I always think that at the end of the day, there's just this fundamental fact: we all make our decisions based on reason. It may not be, it may not be philosophy, it may not be science, but we all have reasons for believing what we believe. And the only question is, are we believing good reasons or bad reasons? And then what are we going to do when we have new reasons thrown at us, which we will? And so, for me, I mean, not for me. I, I think in general, it is wise to explore the ideas out there so that we can encounter arguments all the way around it. So we don't hear something and immediately give up. No. Right? Oh,
2: yeah. And, and I once heard a pastor talk about, Oh, I was on this website and it was like this debate and atheist website. You know what? It ruined my faith. And he was, the whole message was actually, he was trying to say something like, so don't, don't go to this website. <laughs> It'll ruin your faith. I'm a pastor. Ruin my faith. Don't go. Yeah. And, I remember thinking at the time I must be different. And I, and I do really think God has called me to something different and it is a particular, I think maybe even gift, but yeah, doesn't ruin my faith. I go in and I, uh, not, not that I go, I don't actually go to debate any of these websites, but my, my whole point was, I was like, I really felt like it was communicating to me at that point in my life, like in my heart. Yeah. But you'll go to line then Trevor and you'll be fine. And I, and it's something that I realize it, it isn't going to be for everyone and not everyone can do that. And mm-hmm. I, I think it is different. And no, it's a good, it's a good point to bring up. Um,
0: the last thing on the rule of faith, uh, and we can call this a day after this, if you like, unless you want to add something, but chapter 13, um, from the prescription against heretics, he says, now with regard to this rule of faith, um, that we may from this point acknowledge what it is, which we defend, It is. And then he goes on um, to explain what the rule of faith is. At no point does he actually say the rule of faith is the scripture. Eventually, eventually, the rule of faith more or less becomes the scripture. So we get this word in Greek, canon, which means rule, regula in Latin. And sometimes people um, will call the scriptures the canon. And basically what they're saying is there's an identification between the rule of faith and the scriptures. They're the same thing. But I think the reason that Tertullian doesn't want to say the scriptures themselves are exactly the rule of faith is because the heretics, which are Valentinus, Marcion, they have have the same scriptures, and they argue differently from those same scriptures. So really the rule of faith is – and and this is also coming from Irenaeus, but basically it is the old, the scriptures of the Old Testament, uh, the prophets and the apostles, and the preaching um, of the apostles, which demonstrates Jesus Christ as the Word, as the meaning of the Old Testament. That is the rule of faith. So it is the it it it, it sort of binds together both the scriptures, but their proper interpretation. Um, and so it's not I – I, I wouldn't make it reduced to the scriptures. It's more than the scriptures. It's part of the tradition that's passed down from the apostles, which gives the appropriate um, interpretation. And basically what he outlines in chapter 13 is what Tom has already said. Um, the Virgin Mary, um, Jesus Christ, preached in the new law and the promise of the kingdom of heaven, resurrected the third day, ascended to the heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father, um, he will come again, uh, an everlasting life of heavenly promise. And then here, interestingly, he adds to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire um, after the resurrection of both these. Um, and then he says this rule was taught by Christ. Um, so script, you know, so that it's, it's not quite just scripture. Um, and anyway, I, bring, I mean, I bring that up for a couple reasons. One, to give a full explanation of what I take this rule of faith to be. Also to point out that in no later rules uh, is hell uh, mentioned as a place where the wicked go, um, and uh, we'll, we'll, t- we, I mean, we'll get into sort of universalism discussions, um, and Tertullian, not a universalist, um, <laughs> but that will actually be absent from the Nicene uh, and the Apostles' Creeds. Um, so one thing, and Chad,
1: this is something kind of brought up as we were talking before – uh, you know, we got into this, I I still am trying to, I guess, mentally understand the importance of this idea of the rule of faith. Um, it seems to me that the rule of faith, the way he describes it, is the Apostles' Creed. That it's, that's just what it is. Um, and, of course, that word rule is canon, but what that implies for his view of Scripture, I don't know. I don't know that that has what that has to do necessarily with his view of scripture. I I will take contention with a point you said a moment ago about, you said, why is it that he says that this is the rule and not scripture? And you said, because they both use scripture, but he actually goes on and extensively after this for at least the next couple of chapters. He basically says that in chapter 15 concerning, you know, that the heretics that he says, they put forward the scriptures, meaning they use the scriptures to argue their points. And by this insolence of theirs, they at once influence some. In the encounter itself, however, they weary the strong. They catch the weak and dismiss waverers with a doubt. Meaning, he says, they use the Bible to convince people of their position, but they only convince people who don't know it, and all they do is annoy the people who do. He says, accordingly, we oppose to them this step above all others of not admitting them to, admitting them To any discussion of the scriptures, meaning he says, We're not gonna even let them talk about the scriptures. And then in the next chapter, he says, Now, this heresy of yours does not receive certain scriptures, and whichever of them it does receive, it perverts by means of additions and diminutions, meaning you don't have any scriptures to support your view, but you do try to take some, and then you either add or take away for the accomplishment of its own purpose, and such as it does receive, it receives not in their entirety, meaning you don't read the Scripture in the whole. And so for me, and this has been something that honestly uh, I have tried to, that I I found of great interest as we read these guys, I want to know what their view of the New Testament is, what their view of the Bible is. And what I keep coming to is, that they have a really high view of this of the scriptures, specifically the New Testament uh well, and the old actually both the old and the New Testament, that they have a very high view of it, and it seems and he's not alone in this. everybody we've read it seems so far uses it as absolutely authoritative, that is they will quote it in defense of their view, and if somebody believes something opposite and uses a verse to support their view, they'll say, you're twisting that now, the implication of that kind of argument is. I think a kind of inerrancy. Maybe it's not exactly what we think of as inerrancy, but a kind of it, because their belief seems to be, because if so let me let me rephrase it slightly differently. If they didn't look at the scriptures as being absolutely authoritative and in some sense infallible or inerrant or something like that, then they could just say, Oh, well, I just disagree with that point. They could just disagree with the scripture, but they seem committed to not doing that. And instead saying, you're twisting that because this is all true. So you just are misunderstanding it or you're taking it out of context or you're not explaining it in the light of the whole. So that's kind of, you know, in other words, I I don't disagree with you on the points about the rule of faith. I don't think the rule of faith is the scripture. I don't disagree with you on that in his mind, but I don't know that he, that that says anything substantive about what he thinks about scripture. In other words, I don't think he thinks of it as, well, the rule of faith is the highest thing, and then below that is Scripture. I think if my assumption would be, like the way most Christians have thought, you have the Apostles' Creed, which defines Christianity. He brings this out, the rule of faith, and says, look, you Martianists or you Valentinians, you guys don't even square with the rule of faith, which we all have, plus you take the Scripture and twist it. I don't know that it is making a substantive claim about what he thinks about the Scriptures to say that they're different.
0: Well, it, it's important to remember, especially for Irenaeus, but I believe also in Tertullian. It, I mean, the New Testament is emerging as Scripture. But for Irenaeus specifically, when he mentions Scripture, he means the Old Testament. Um, and and that is the Scripture. So I, I, I'm not – I I wouldn't put them in a hierarchy. I actually think his sort of – the rule of faith is the hermeneutic. In addition to the Old Testament as preached by the apostles to prove Christ as the meaning of the Old Testament, all of that um, is sort of tied up in this notion of r- rule of faith. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would contend with the point you made about Irenaeus. I, it seems to me that
1: New Testament passages are quoted as authoritative. Super extensively, all the way back to Clement of Rome. I've never seen any indication in anybody we've read that the New Testament passages ought not be taken as scripture.
0: They're it, they're authoritative. They are authoritatively part of the tradition. I still think the appropriate word is scripture for the Old Testament at that point. No, they they
1: definitely use the term scripture for New Testament. I mean they we obviously have to go back and pull out the text.
0: I mean Irenaeus definitely doesn't, but
1: I, I I definitely disagree with you. I mean I I just think you're wrong on that. I mean obviously we gotta pull out Irenaeus and go through it, but yeah. But I mean he quotes New Testament passages. He definitely
0: quotes New Testament passages. It's authoritative. I mean, I, It's authoritative I, for him. I still. Think I, I,
1: I've never seen anything in Irenaeus that makes it sound like he draws a distinction. There's this thing called the Scriptures, which is the Old Testament, and we have this other thing that isn't the Scriptures. That is these other things that are authoritative but aren't the Scriptures.
0: The I've adult, never seen that. the authoritatively preached Scripture. Yeah,
2: but well, it makes sense what Chad's saying though because it's, it's not that. I'm not sure, I don't remember a distinction in the words, but in the same way that they're probably thinking of um, the rule of faith, or as to quote Tertullian here, the rule of faith is Christ's teaching, as preserved by the apostles and as proven by Scripture, which I think that is kind of a a formula we are seeing. And so they use that word, and they kind of do mean it. Normally, at least, it seems to me like they're meaning the Old Testament, because that was the scripture they had already. That was already. We've brought this up many times. I Like in
1: no way do I see this. There's, I mean, all the way back to Clement of Rome and certainly Ignatius of Antioch, which way predate these guys. You have extensive quotes with references to these. Th- there is never a point at which you have this distinction at anybody we've read ever that there is this one thing called the scripture, which is the Old Testament. And then there are these other things which are authoritative, but aren't the scripture. They say, thus, I mean, they do say uh, it is written. We talked about that back with Clement. It is written, which is the the specific description of Old Testament passages.
0: Yeah, In, I I think Testament it's Testament yeah. Well, um, and that's that's fine. I think we're going to disagree on this. Uh, well, I, I but mean, here's, I
1: will say this: it shouldn't be something. This is a factual thing. We should be able to uncover this. So, I mean, next week I'll come. I mean. This should be something we can demonstrate. This isn't philosophical.
2: No, uh, <laughs>
1: like so, I do want something that demonstrates this point because I, yeah. I certainly will not just grant it. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to grant it,
2: uh, <laughs> but I mean, it goes against everything I've read. I, was, I mean, I've never seen anything that implies it. I guess what I was trying to say was, I haven't read something that says. I, I thought I was agreeing with you in the sense that I didn't read anything like that, but I get his the. Like I'm get like just taking it all in as one big picture. I get the overall sense in what she's saying. They're trying to preserve the teachings of Christ, and then they will often say something like, you know, which are proven by scripture. They'll say that sometimes. I have I have, I do remember that. Just saying, look, like, te- like Christ is proven by the scriptures. They'll say or something like that. I don't know that that means as much as so the scriptures are just the Old Testament. and Here's this other thing. I I'm not saying that, but I definitely remember what you're saying, Chad, in the sense that they'll sometimes say something like that. Um, yeah. I don't don't know. I
1: I mean, we got to come with this stuff because I want to, I mean, I want to, because I feel like this isn't anything we've talked about before. So I'd like to see some, I mean, every time we talked about it, I felt like it's gone totally in line with what I'm saying. I mean, it has every time we've discussed it. So I want to see the texts.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I will, uh, dig up my, um, against heresies. Um, One thing – let's see. I I thought something else was going to say about the rule of faith, but – oh, well, uh, the other other sort of – yeah. uh, The other thing I was going to put in the background of it, the reason that I brought up Irenaeus in addition to Tertullian is they both take on a form of of 2nd and 3rd century poetry that I'm actually going to – I'm in the process of writing a paper on, which are called these cento, which are taking Homer and Virgil pulling apart the verses and then telling a new story. Um, And what I take Tertullian and Irenaeus to be, they both use this as an example and say, this is false interpretation. Um, This is false. Um, It doesn't tell the story that Homer intended. And so what I was trying to argue is that there's a story that scripture is telling it is interpreted correctly through the rule of faith, which is passed down uh, the preaching of the apostles that Christ is the meaning of the Old Testament, and so we can reject Gnostics. We can reject uh, the uh, Valentinian interpretation um, because they don't have they don't have the story in its right form, um, and so. And we are being to- we we know the right way to tell the story, um, because it's been be- being told and passed down from the apostles who preach Christ as the meaning of the scriptures of the Old Testament. Hmm. Okay. It's, a- I mean it, yeah. And all part part of part of what I'm saying is also dependent upon a. a uh, secondary source, um, jo- uh, John Baer, um, who, who does a lot of work on the Nicene Fathers. He's Orthodox. He's really good.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't have any problem with what you just said in sense of, I mean, I don't know exactly what I think about it per se. I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I don't understand exactly the phrase of we have the rule of faith, which so far as I can tell, whenever it's referenced, is just the Nicene Creed and then saying that's the thing which we apply to the Old Testament as a way of interpreting it. I mean, I understand, I guess, how those words like come together. I don't, I'm not visually understanding. Like, I mean, I don't know what significant claim that's making exactly. For me, I take issue with the other claim that you seem to be making, which is that the New Testament was not considered Scripture, which seems patently contrary to everything we've read
2: to me. Yeah, fair enough. I thought it was just interesting, though, that in general, I thought of it was more like a Venn diagram, right? Like if you had all things we can take as um, authoritative, you know, someone who, uh, I, you know, someone might say, it's just literally just the Bible and that fits the whole diagram. Whereas I think um, what maybe is being communicated here by Chad is that basically the Venn diagram goes a bit beyond that. And it's because it's also just the teachings of Christ as preserved by the apostles in, in whatever form that may be. And so it's not everything that's explicitly written, but also just teachings that were preserved. So, like, which, I, which I've thought about before. I mean, I also, though, think all these doctrines can be derived from the Bible, more or less. So, I, so this, this one's always been weird for me, but stuff like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the Trinity, obviously, soon. But things like that, I've always thought, like, we did end up coming to, like, it was because of this uh, succession of the apostles teaching what they heard Christ say, and so they were they were trying to preserve that, that we come to the Trinity, which is this whole, like, well-formed, really rigidly defined thing that, yeah, by no means is anything that explicit in the Bible, uh, whereas I do think you can properly derive it from the Bible. So maybe that's... Would, would that come under the rule of faith in general, something like,
0: yeah. Yeah. Something well, like the Trinity? All,
1: all of these things are fine. I don't have any problem with any of these claims. It's the idea that the, the, the guys we've been reading don't think the New Testament is the Scripture.
2: No, no. That's I'm, what I'm saying is no, just not true. I'm not even like talking about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so all that other just, stuff
0: is kind of interesting. I mean, all that stuff's interesting. I'm just saying. I was just getting back. To I'm just trying to – I'm also just trying to take into account what is going on in the period – um, which, for one thing, I, I, I calling what Tertullian writes. What I take him to be calling the rule of faith. There, it is. It is sort of a nascent form of the Apostles' Creed, um, but the Apostles' Creed probably isn't call, like isn't written until a little bit later than this. So, I, I mean, it's being developed, but we don't. Yeah, we, we talked about that. We talked about that. I mean, same thing with the Irenaeus. It looks. It's not exactly what we think of as the plot, but it's essentially the same it's thing. It's essentially the same thing. But right. the point is, content-wise, yeah. content that's it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm – well, part of what I'm, again, trying to do is take into account that um, there is also variation um, into what is being considered apostolic teaching about Jesus Christ um, insofar as Second Peter is not always included in the lists or – um revelation or you know there's like there's ongoing development about what gets called new testament scripture and codified as new testament scripture so part of the hesitancy to use the word scripture is also the not that there isn't a continuing authority being claimed by them but it's certainly not fixed absolutely at this point
1: well let me say this about that because that is that's legitimate At the same time, not anything we've ever read in our discussions. There's never, we have not come across one of the debates that did in fact exist about what books should be allowed in. Uh But that is nonetheless a disagreement about what books should be counted as scripture. The assumption being that some are scripture. You know what I mean? Like the assumption is that there is a New Testament and it's full of all these books that are scripture. And some people are, in fact, coming in and arguing, well, some of these shouldn't be counted. And some are arguing that some of the ones that aren't included should be. And there's we've we've already established in previous podcasts that when that is legally locked up for the church, is it Carthage, at the Council right. of Carthage? I know that. But this concept, nonetheless, that the New Testament is Scripture, that the New Testament is a thing, and that it's composed principally of mostly the same books that all—I mean, in general, there's a— huge agreement about it and it seems to be so widespreadly known that people feel comfortable quoting it all the time as as not just authority but as scripture that's kind of the issue i mean i'm willing to admit that there's a disagreement although i don't know the degree to which that disagreement like extends
2: we have like i said we've come across none of those debates so For, for now like what i can remember is what's quoted as scripture mostly is the gospel's and the epistles of Paul. And then then every once in a while, you'll get one of the other epistles by another apostle. Mm, but I, I don't
1: know. I mean, I've seen extensive quotes from revelation from certainly first Peter. Uh, yeah. I mean, there was someone in particular.
0: Um, yeah, I want to tie. I am I think part of the argument I'm making sort of ties the tradition and the traditions interpretation of the texts in with, the concept of sort of binding theological truth. (laughs) Maybe it's, maybe it's this. And part of it is part of it is a hesitancy of uh, to apply post reformation style categories of sola scriptura um, into the provenance of the second and third centuries. Um,
1: Yeah. But that's, that's actually partly my thing is it seems to me that that's there. It seems to me that that's present. And, yeah. and it seems to me that Luther, that Luther, who undoubtedly was familiar, I mean, who read this stuff, um, like there was something that motivated him to say, holy crap, this tradition, which we all hold up, is just, thats just not God's word. And, yeah. the Bible, and he didn't just come up with that out of a vacuum. I mean, he's rooting that, I think, in what he perceives the scripture to be saying, as well as what he perceives the fathers to be saying.
0: Yeah. The notion of tradition and what's been passed on is a huge can of worms that we will definitely unpack. I find this rule of faith to be, I I want, I mean, I guess I read it to be different than the scriptures themselves. Yeah.
1: I, 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 I do think that's, can I just honestly, like this isn't pushback here. You've been saying, you've said this for a long time. I don't see why that's relevant. You know what I mean? Like, the point you're trying to make about its relevance isn't getting through to me. Like, I, I I get it. The rule of faith isn't the Scriptures. I don't
0: at all understand why that's important. It's this important thing. because the it becomes the Scriptures. What do you mean? Um, I mean, in a sense, the canon becomes the Scriptures. Well, let me say this. Whatever I've been convinced of
1: about the rule of faith, I don't, when I read this, think their view is the rule of faith is inspired by God, and that's the thing that is inerrant and the scriptures, those are errant. And that's the thing that is, I don't get that at all. So I'm okay. If they believe that both are authoritative in a strict sense and both are inerrant. Although for me, what I see in all the stuff we've read is two references to the rule of faith, um, two passages in all of the guys we've read that talk about it and don't say a ton. And I've seen
0: incessant quoting of scripture. So in other words, I don't, yeah, you should definitely read again against the heretics because he mentions the rule of faith a lot and Clement I say,
1: no, no, I mean two references in the guys we've read, Irenaeus and Tertullian.
0: Or I said Clement, I'm sorry. I meant in this Tertullian prescription against the heretics, he quotes Regula Fide incessantly. Um, right. I'm not saying I'm not saying that oh
1: I'm not saying he only does it once in the book. I'm saying in all the guys we've read, there are two two who have referenced it, Irenaeus and him.
0: And, and Clement mentions the canon of truth, which is presumably- – I forgot about that. You're right. He does. Nobody else, though. Nothing. Um, and so – Well, but then, I mean, if you think about it, in terms of what we've read – and it, I actually think there's an oblique reference to it in Clement of uh, Rome. But uh, – Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I don't – even if it was, it's
1: – So that would be four of who- – Well, no, I'm which- not going to grant you that one. Even if it's oblique, there's no, like,
0: state – there's nothing in it that is – in, like, some kind of a he says, canon of belief. truth, which is what Clement sa- uh, Clement of Alexander says. But, um, either way, if it's three out of having read seven, um, uh, that's half of them, and seven for seven, seven for seven in the Bible, seven for seven in the
1: New Testament. And with those three, Irenaeus, one passage, Clement of Rome, one passage. There's not a lot said on those.
0: Irenaeus two. is more than once.
1: Well, I don't remember reading more than once. Point B, he doesn't talk about it a lot. It's
0: not like – it's not this thing. that's four or five times, but – I don't know. Sorry for the rather abrupt ending to this episode. Tom and I did not come to an agreement on the place of the Regula Fide in the writing of the fathers that we have read to this point. We will continue to have this discussion in later podcasts, I'm sure. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Please check out Silent again next week where we'll be discussing Minutius Felix.